Hello and welcome to Inside the Artist Studio. My name is Sean Davis Newton, here representing, as per usual, the Cups and Cakes Network. I'm excited to share an episode that I recorded a couple days ago with Sammy Volkov. Sammy's an Edmonton-based artist who put out a brand new record just about, uh, I guess, one week before this episode came out, December 2nd. That record is called Be All Right, and I chat with Sammy about uh, recording that record at Riverdale Recorders here in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, with, uh, with the help of producer Harry Gregg, mutual friend of ours. We chat about how Sammy feels about collaboration, talk a lot about... Uh, taking inspiration from older music old 78s and such and uh we talk about sammy's time living in uh los angeles and uh new york city slinging pizza at a pizza counter of course there is some foul language in this episode so listener beware and uh, if you want to check out other episodes of this podcast as well as other audio visual and written content uh, you can find that all over on the cups and cakes network website at cupsandcakespod.com one more time for everybody in the back, that's Cups, the letter N, CakesPod.com. Here's Sammy Volkov. I'm Sammy Volkov, uh, so-called Edmonton-based singer-songwriter. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on Inside the Artist Studio. We were just chatting before we started recording. We, we've met a couple of times. I've seen you play live at least once and then uh yeah met you through a uh, good friend harry Gregg at riverdale yeah exactly and it's funny how slow my brain is i saw your name on the emails and only now a minute like before talking to you i'm like oh of course sean davis newton i've i've met you and uh yeah we met at riverdale recorders um where my stuff was recorded but for the next project i'll be releasing with dana wiley uh that was fun i think we were tracking some pedal steel or something that day yeah i think um i think those were demos for a grant maybe oh that makes sense okay and then since then we've actually finished the whole album yeah yeah, yeah. um well uh we'll, we'll talk a whole bunch more about uh riverdale recorders probably mm-hmm. uh but for mm-hmm. now we're gonna we're gonna dive into some rapid fire stuff so uh without further ado we'll uh we'll jump right into that um, is there a is there a signature dish that you cook or bake that makes people think of you? <laughs> um, I love that. I I had a I had a fried chicken phase that made me like <laughs> like more desirable as a family member for a while, <laughs> and then I realized like the payoff I was getting socially wasn't worth the work. I don't think so. Like I'd rather I'd rather be like the person that people don't need to prioritize making like a dinner party happen with <laughs> than like, you know, because the chicken takes so long and you got to use all this oil and it makes the house smell, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Fried chicken is like for a while I had a fascination and I guess still do with um, various dishes that are very easy to go out and purchase and not that expensive mm-hmm. and are just incredibly labor intensive to do by yourself. <laughs> Um, yeah, like bagels. Oh yeah. Yep. Bagels. I tried bagels once. I, uh, it was not good. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was a, like a self-proclaimed bagel guy for a little bit and I've since like kind of backed out on that commitment. Yeah. The only one I really stuck with was making ice cream at home. Oh, okay. Um, because the reward you get is well worth it. I think, uh, Homemade ice cream is just real special. It's very, very good. <laughs> but you you got to have one of those like motorized machines, right? Yeah, you can get ones with a crank, but that's like a whole other whole other kettle of fish. So that's weird. That that almost feels like some kind of religious penance, you know? <laughs> like ch- churning your own butter or like cranking your own ice cream. It's like there's something else going on in your life that you're compensating for. I think. <laughs> uh, do you have a Do you have a morning routine that you follow? No. <laughs> do you do you ever um like like are are you a person who wishes that you had some kind of like structure or that you had developed that kind of thing or do you do you just genuinely not really uh not really feel like that's helpful for you? Well, I have been a very structured person in the past and 
I find that now I have less structure. Overall, I'm enjoying my life more. I don't think that's actually because I have less structure. It's because I'm doing things I'm interested in, but <laughs> it's also like a convenient excuse to just like, you know, not worry too much about being an organized person. Um, but uh, also like the work I do to pay rent is pretty unpredictable scheduling wise. So right. that's the real reason for like a lack of any kind of meaningful routine. What What is your, uh, what is your pay rent work? If you don't mind me asking. Oh yeah. I do this audiobook stuff. So I didn't know it was a job at all until, um, 2020, but, um, I direct audiobooks, which is sort of a funny title because I'm hardly a director. I'm more of like a real time quality control kind of guy. Gotcha. Maybe like, maybe it's more like a, a stage manager for like a one person show. <laughs> so like I do keep track of things. I mark up a script. I'm always there jumping in constantly with any little correction that has to be made. And I'm also like helping with dialects and, uh, cause I have training in dialects and the international phonetic alphabet. So like I can, with a list, I can feed the pronunciation to the actor as we go. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's cool. Cause like, I mean, it's by far the most interesting job I've ever had. And it's kind of like getting paid to listen to stories when it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that can be awesome. Overall, it's really, really good. But uh, it's freelance, and it's so it's just naturally that's very unpredictable. Um, but uh, it's been pretty solid since like twenty twenty ish. So yeah, and I also do like uh, quality control on the audiobook. Um, well, when the audiobook is pretty much done, I'll just sit there, and it's exactly what it sounds like. I'll, I'll like follow along with the script and listen to the audio and mark anything that has to be fixed by post. Right. Yeah. Uh, still trying out this question. We'll see how this goes on the second time around, but uh, do, do you use pencils or pens? <laughs> Neither. I, um, <laughs> I use a fancy tablet thing. Oh, okay. For uh, yeah, that, for like songwriting stuff as well. Oh, for songwriting. I, um, I'll do voice memos and note notes. And then when it comes to actually, when I feel like it's worth it, like if the song is working, then I'll always have a, a document in, in my computer that I'll, I'll type it up. I've never been a, a handwriting songwriter. It's funny. I, I think I uh, like a, like a morning routine. It's one of those things that I like endeavor to do where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to mm -hmm. get this nice notebook, and then you can scribble stuff out, and there's something easy about it. Um, but but I think just uh, for whatever reason, the way that technology is, it starts to feel like when you've written something down, it's like, I've committed to this lyric now. Exactly, yeah. So I think like that would actually be an interesting exercise to do handwriting more, because it may sort of force you to trust your instincts possibly yeah and and like know that not every word can be like changed uh as easily so and it's also just very romantic like you know it's nice to have this like obviously handcrafted relic <laughs> of a song but I, I i don't know i had like a brief phase of thinking i would write my songs by hand and then i started to feel like that was a pretty unreasonable for me. And it felt, it felt almost like a weird narcissistic exercise. It's like, mm, look at my handwriting. It's like, yeah, now it's, it's official. And it's, it's like a piece of my history. It's like, who the hell cares? Like I should just have a, a notepad in my phone that I'm always like, you know, starting over on. Yeah. Um, it's funny the um the only reason that I tend to regularly like handwrite lyrics out is just when I like have a gig coming up and I feel like I don't know the lyrics well enough I will just copy them over and over again and mm. like write them down um oh interesting I've never done that that's cool yeah it just I don't know why it it just it sticks in my head a little bit better um yeah but again in, in terms of like uh uh, flights of fancy of like 
uh, legacy building stuff. It's like at some point anybody <laughs> would look back and be like, why the fuck did he just write, like there's 20 copies of this that are exactly <laughs> the same. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, and, and obviously he didn't care about trees. <laughs> What uh it was so self-absorbed. <laughs> no, it, that sounds like a good idea actually. I used to do that for acting stuff. Like I would Yeah, yeah. If it was a mon- if a monologue I would just write it out a lot. Uh what was the first car you ever had? It was an Acura 3.2 TL. Um it was probably from 2000 or 2001. It was very very used obviously. But it was a great car. And a lot of cars in California look like they have a skin disease. Like their <laughs> first two layers of whatever that is, like a clear coat, are just like worn away. Yeah, yeah. And it's really ugly. But it's kind of great because it's like a theft deterrent as well, I think. Um, <laughs> and that car was great. I drove it across the continent from uh, L.A. to Toronto. And then it was sort of gifted to my brother and he he totaled it in like two weeks. <laughs> Why uh why were you in LA? Well, I went there because I had it's like really embarrassing to tell this story. <laughs> so it was like the classic um post acting school met a manager slash agent in LA who was he he literally said, I think you've got upswing potential. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably should have been a really big red flag. <laughs> I was like, okay, I trust you. I'll I'll change and you know uproot and alone. I'll just come to LA and it'll be great. And uh, it was a disaster from an acting perspective, um, but it was a fascinating experience in every other way. Like it was, I don't regret it, but it was hard. You know, it's hard to move to a city alone and to have your ego crushed and. Uh, to realize you're, you don't have upswing potential. You're just <laughs> some guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I did the same thing in Toronto, roughly. My brother was going to school there, and he was like, you should come move out here and just like be a songwriter and, and play a bunch of gigs around. And then it was like, yeah, okay. And you, you very quickly realized it's like, I have no avenue through which to meet people other than totally. my brother who's in school for jazz, which is like... Yeah. Great, but not the kinds of uh, not the kind of music really I want to be doing. Um, yeah, it's very lonely to sort of rely on one person as like your social facilitator, like yeah, or nobody, like just try and do things on your own. Like yeah, like in LA, I would just go to uh, open mics alone, knowing nobody there, um, which is fine. But that was like the bulk of my social life. It was really sad, and I had like a couple friends from work, but. Um, yeah, it was very, a very lonely time, but actually the, the positive side effect is that I wrote constantly, like yeah, yeah. every, every moment of free time I had. And even while I was working, I'd be coming up with melodies constantly. Cause I was like a door to door salesman okay. and I would, uh, I would drive so much every day. And in that time I would just be forcing cool new music on myself, uh, in the, in the Acura. And, um, when I got home, I would just write music. And so, yeah, in the time I was in LA, I wrote like just dozens and dozens of songs and a few of which I still play. Like I, I still think they're, they're cool. Um, yeah. But so it was a weird trade-off. It was like an immense productivity for a zero social life. And I want to find more of a balance. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little weird when uh, it's like uh, I think everybody has that kind of uh, fantasy of the like, you know, going off to write a record in the cabin in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, it's odd when your version of the cabin in the woods is Los Angeles. <laughs> um, yeah, and like the cabin found me in a way. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was not a lonely cabin. It was a noisy, stinky, busy, <laughs> stressful like cubicle in a parking lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a weird time. What's the weirdest job you've ever had? Oh, man, the weirdest one? I had a lot. Uh, 
I think the the hardest one to believe is that I sold pizza in Grand Central Station in New York. <laughs> okay. Which sounds like a really poorly written kids novel, you know? <laughs> but that actually happened. Yeah, at like a like a stand kind of thing or like pretty much it was like a a counter, like a lunch counter kind of place. Yeah, yeah. And and uh yeah, that was it. I was a, like a pizza slinger in uh, in Manhattan, in Grand Central. <laughs> so I was like, "Wow, I really made it." <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's some part of me that, uh, you know, when you watch movies, there is inevitably, if it's a movie in New York, there is like a guy on the street who sells hot dogs, or yes. uh, in this case, pizza. There's part of me that feels like, in my life, I would be very happy as just that kind of side character. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, I'm the guy who sells yeah. hot dogs on the street. Uh, it's great. <laughs> like you don't need to have more, uh, like more work, you know, or you don't need to have more of a like defined role in life. It's just, I'll be that hot dog seller on the margins. <laughs> and like, you know, you can, you can see everything pass you by, but you know, you're like an important part of that street. Like those those hot dog guys are an integral part of the city, and like those chicken on rice guys, like I think that's like the that's like the twenty first century version of like the sixties hot dog guy. It's like <laughs> the chicken on rice guy is the essential New York lunch, and they take often they you can tell they take great pride in their in their trucks and like they have a lot of variety from truck to truck. Yeah, yeah, they're awesome. Like. I still remember my favorite one. I would I would travel to it. Like I would I would like think, okay, today I should go to this chicken and rice guy. And it was like five bucks for like the best lunch ever. Even. Yeah. Well it's the thing and you yeah. kinda like ingratiate yourself with a little community and like mm-hmm. I don't know, just it seems nice in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. I, I but you know, man, it must be tough. I, I think it's like impossibly expensive to to run one of those. Yeah, that that would yeah. not surprise me. Uh, do you prefer video games, board games, or sports? I hate all those things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to be difficult. It's actually true. I don't. I have no patience for sports, and I, I am like really weird, ninety five year old baby man who never played video games. And it's not because my parents were weird or anything. Like, it was possible to play video games. I just, I always would rather watch a movie. Right. Probably because I was just not smart enough to be good at a game <laughs> or just too lazy. So, but I would prefer to, I would always watch old movies. That was my favorite thing. Right. Yeah. When, when we say old, I feel like um, that has a pretty variable meaning to different people. What's, mm. uh, what, what kind of movies are we talking about? Like, we're talking about, like, movies that the hot dog guy in the 60s would call an old movie. So, like, gotcha. I loved, like, 30s movies and, but all all the way up to, like, you know, classics from the 70s, you know. I would just go to the library and, and like, uh, borrow lots of old movies that looked interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, that was my favorite thing. That was, that was my version of video games. Like, uh, I would just find a... A interesting looking movie. I I was a big uh, big Marx Brothers guy growing up. Oh, cool! Um, yeah, the, yeah. My parents just played those movies like on repeat because mm-hmm. they're great. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, same thing. I, I grew up watching a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, or like you know, um, Harold Lloyd. Yeah, uh, yeah. All, all that really old stuff is fun. Abbott and Costello. Uh, no, but the the guys who were actually really funny were um, uh, they just made a movie about them with Will Ferrell and or not Will Ferrell with John C. Riley. Oh, Three Stooges. Uh, no, no, the the uh, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. There was like a very slight, soft spoken British guy. Oh, oh, and a very large, bossy guy with a mustache. Yeah, no, I. And they know. had bowler hats. I know the movie you're talking about too. 
Oh, Laurel and Hardy. Yes, thank yeah. you, Laurel and Hardy. They're actually really funny. Like a lot of that stuff is still funny. They're they're physical bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I'm a big Buster Keaton fan too. Oh yeah, yeah. And watching a lot of that stuff is just like, again, it, it's nice because it's like that. Uh, there is no one who can watch this where it's not going to be at least a little bit amusing. Like it's, um just like physically impressive at a certain point Mm -hmm. yeah it is it is amazing yeah uh do you have a hobby or a pastime that you've gotten into in the past few years that you kind of surprised yourself by uh developing an interest in oh um pottery (laughs) that was one i i was surprised to find myself doing it but i i always knew i loved it because i did some like little after school thing once and I, and I loved that. But when I was in Toronto, I um, I joined some like wheel pottery class. Okay, yeah. And I, I really loved that. Yeah, I was the only uh, relatively young or like male identifying person in the class, and uh, it was it was funny because I was a real misfit. Um, <laughs> but it was cool. I like that. I like. Yeah, I like using the wheel a lot. I don't like crafting things right? like yeah. with clay, like molding clay. I just don't like how messy it is. But I love how uh, beautiful the process is on a wheel. It's like magic when you see the symmetrical things happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> Were you any good at it? Yeah, I think so. I think I was pretty good. Like I, I have some pictures of stuff I made that it's just as good as anyone's homemade pottery I've seen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tried to make it really fine looking. And yeah, yeah. It was nice to, to glaze it as lightly as I could. And yeah, I took I took a lot of care in that and I, I liked it. Yeah. But I haven't I haven't been doing it since. It's kind of expensive to find like a nice studio that you can yeah. go to. Uh do you have a, a favorite uh favorite studio snack? Something something you like uh you like chowing down on when you're uh, working on recordings? Uh vermicelli bowl. Oh yeah. Yeah, I uh it's because of Riverdale. I was gonna say I, I did that at Riverdale with probably very similar people that you did. Like yeah. God, I guess that's two months ago now, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's gotta be it's gotta be Vietnamese food. Yeah. And like coffee has to be. But that's that's a staple. That's like a a fundamental thing. That's that's not a snack. That's like a that's like the lifeblood of a recording session is the coffee. <laughs> yeah, it, it's the the vermicelli bowls with, with Brendan Lyons at Riverdale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like someone will be really bold and get like a giant soup thing yeah, yeah. and it's just like a big mess and it's like <laughs> they're like just almost done assembling their bowl of soup and everyone's like halfway done their food it's the soup is not the soup is great but it's uh, soup to go is a weird thing soup is hard as a takeout item yeah and and like yeah there's not really any two ways about it unless you have like a good set of dishes that you can kind of transfer things into but yeah you gotta have some huge beautiful bowls don't eat don't eat soup out of a cardboard or like a you know a styrofoam (laughs) thing like eating soup takeout soup out of styrofoam is like the most insulting thing to the soup (laughs) and like the i guess more importantly the people who made it (laughs) sad don't do that uh is there uh is there an album that spurred your love of music uh well i just i always like literally my earliest memories are of like music so uh, i don't know it was always essential um but the for me the most sort of transformative record moment was i when i was seven someone at a garage sale gave me some 78s okay and um then we i took those home to my parents and we didn't have a record player that could play them and then that same night, me and my dad were driving around the neighborhood and there was a, a record player from the 50s with a sign like that said free on it. And we hooked that up at home 
And uh, for the next several days, I think I would just stare at those 78s on that 50s record player. Yeah. And that was definitely like a turning point for me. And from then on, I would always be interested in finding old records and um, just exploring music physically that way became like the most interesting thing to me. Yeah. Do do you remember what, like who was on the 78s? Like what musicians? Oh yeah. It's a, it was a, the like album set of the Oklahoma soundtrack, the, the, the Broadway original Broadway cast. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that's pretty hilarious actually. Uh, but, uh, I, I loved the melodies and I loved the format, like these heavy fragile discs and the label, the Decca label had that beautiful kind of script. Yeah. Yeah. Writing. And um, what's great about 78s is that I think they're like a a very satisfying music to material ratio. Like you see the needle move, they're, they're so big and there's only one song on each side that right. a lot of... Uh, a lot of territory has to be covered like for three minutes of music at that speed. So you see the needle move along and it, and it makes it more like involved. It's like you can, it's the easiest to understand and relate to, I think that format because you, you see the movement as you're feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. And the grooves are like defined, you know, you can, you can see them with your eye. Um, yeah, so I, I love 78s a lot. Yeah, I, I don't know at what point, like I, I worked at an antique store for like four years. Um, at some point, probably even before that, but often when I was there, it was like uh, I had a, uh, a fascination with putting 78s on the kind of players where you have an actual like a, a steel or aluminum needle. And then mm-hmm. it's like... Uh, they are not electronic it just like physically amplifies the sound of that oh, man it's amazing yeah there's something like it's so stunning so cool yeah exactly and to know that those those recordings you know 1925 and earlier were acoustic and yeah so they're they're sort of a miracle like there's there's very little happening that is hard to kind of conceptualized it's like once you understand that like vibrations are channeled into another thing that's vibrating and the vibration is captured it's like with records you can really see it and you can begin to sort of understand what's happening but it's still magic yeah yeah um but uh so so with the recordings before electric recordings it's like it's just so special that that electricity wasn't even needed to make a lot of early recordings. Uh, very last question. Uh, are there any, uh, any, any up and coming, uh, bands or artists that, uh, that you're a big fan of around Edmonton here that you want to, want to give a shout out to? Oh, well, I have to, <laughs> okay. I shouldn't have said have to, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm biased is what like my partner Daniela is in STEM champ and I, I think STEM champ is really awesome. And they're like the pretty much the house band at the aviary <laughs> and um, everybody loves them. They're, they've got the best energy. Uh, Sarah Alamu is the leader and they just write really, uh, really passionately and perform really passionately. Um, and they're a cool band and they're definitely up and coming. Like, Sarah's been at it for a long time, but the the band as a as a unit is is playing more and more, and yeah, I think they they've become like a sort of Edmonton staple of the punk pop punk folk scene. Um, totally, totally removed from the kind of music I do, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. Um, so I don't know. That's the one I've got to say. Yeah, yeah. I love I love Wares, and I'm I'm excited to hear more of Cass Hardy's um, solo. 
work. Yeah. Um, what else? I'm going to really regret not naming something that, uh, well, Emmett, My Emmett Michael is super talented. Um, Lyndon Carter is cool. I mean, Lauren Gillis is like a well-known Edmonton artist. Uh, sorry, Lucette is a well-known Edmonton artist. Um, there's so many, I don't know, like, who else? It's funny. I always, uh, <laughs> it's the look on people's faces when I ask this question and everybody's <laughs> like, scared. Oh no. <laughs> um, because yeah. it's like, it's a good question, right? Like you want to, you want to talk is, about some yeah. other bands, but also, uh, boy, yeah, it puts people on the spot pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Mariel Buckley. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I know, I know that Mariel Buckley is, I mean, you said like up and coming Edmonton <laughs> band and that's not Mariel Buckley. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mariel Buckley's an established and now kind of to the world, a Calgary based fair uh, musician, I would say. But um, if somebody asks me like, yeah, what, what's like a Albertan or Canadian young uh, musician, um, I would always say I, I love Mariel Buckley's stuff because I, I think she's doing something really important. Um, and I like look up to Mariel Buckley a lot. Um, yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll kind of dive into the second half of things here then. Uh, we're going to, we're going to obviously talk a bunch about the, the new record, which is be all right. Um, I guess I guess let's start doing that. When 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 did you uh, when did you start writing tunes for this record? I first recorded music for Be All Right in January of 2020, and at that time things were pretty normal. <laughs> uh, I was living in New York and working as a second second assistant accountant for production offices for TV shows, um, which is the most unlikely occupation. Like I didn't do grade 12 math and they just didn't have to know that. Um, somehow I was there and I was very depressed. I really, I hated the kind of person I was becoming and, uh, music was all I cared about. Wrote to Harry Gregg and Scott Franchuk one day while I was, I was tallying lunch receipts and I was like, I need to escape this. I need to record some music. Let's make a single. And I wrote to them and right away. They were like, of course, let's do it. I uh, went back to Edmonton in January and did those. I think we recorded like three songs. And then um, everything happened, as you know. <laughs> and I ran away from the U.S., came back to Edmonton. Pretty shortly after I came back to Edmonton, wrote to Harry Gregg and Scott Franchuk again. And I was like, is it completely unhinged to want to make an album right now? And of course they were like, no, let's do it. So <laughs> yeah, we did it uh, safely. Yeah. Nobody got sick. Nobody got sick during um, be all right. Some COVID spread around during the, uh, a, a different project, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> a project that will re remain nameless. One that I'm very proud of and excited about. But um, yeah, during Be All Right, uh, nobody got sick, which is kind of a miracle, I think. And it was the best experience ever. Yeah, we recorded like 13 or 14 songs and 11 of them made it to the album. So I, I, I'm kind of curious just because um, the whole record has uh, what I would call pretty kind of like throwback feel to it mm -hmm. um and uh a, a good amount of that is is production based right like it it sounds like it should sound mm -hmm. when you are sitting down to write the songs do, do you have that kind of flavor in mind or or do you have some kind of ideas for what where you want to take it i guess yeah for me a huge part of songwriting involves an idea of of how the record should sound 
or at least how the record could sound in a dream world. So usually when I write a song, I'll include a bunch of notes with it. Like, you know, this should be like a sweet uh, pop ballad in the same vein as blah, blah, blah. And I'll like to remind myself how I want it to sound. Right. I'll, I'll write down a lot of like reference tracks. And cause that's a, to me, that's like just integral to writing a song is, is knowing how it's going to sound. Right. It's, that sounds such a stupid sentence, but it's like more than the lyrics. I think it's like the lyrics inform the music and the music informs the lyrics. And, uh, so I almost never will just write lyrics right? without knowing how, or at least without being inspired by like a specific kind of atmosphere in a recording. Right. Yeah. Like, so I hear, I always hear the recording in my head. Like I always am imagining how the record's going to sound when I'm writing a song. Do you, do you do a fair amount of demoing by yourself then? Or, uh, a little no i do very very simple demos and it's mostly in the notes i write with the lyrics right to remind myself how i would like it to sound when it's actually recorded properly so so what's the first step then in terms of taking those songs and those notes um and and taking them to other people um well taking that stuff to harry greg is uh so easy and wonderful is he so willing to go above and beyond to like realize these ideas and so he'll he'll listen to the demo and look at my notes and my pseudo uh music because it's just like i write the letters of the chords above my words i don't even make like a proper chart and he'll 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 take all my ideas and translate them to the brilliant musicians he would have brought into the studio to, to play the song. And, uh, we will talk a lot about it. Right. So I'll talk about like the dream of how it should sound. And then together we'll just have at it until we feel like we're approaching the right sort of level. And, um, yeah, so he's he was the greatest to work with because he would really go so far to try and achieve what it was I was dreaming of, you know, which is like all you can ever hope for as a like a songwriter. Yeah, yeah. I will uh maybe this is like a little bit of inside baseball, but um I I worked on some demos for a grant with Harry a little while back. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I've known Harry for a few years now and just consistently my favorite thing about working with him is that he is completely willing to tell you what you are wrong about. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Harry is so, there aren't that many filters in place with Harry (laughs) and I really love that. Yeah. It, it took me a little while to kind of get used to because most people are like super diplomatic, but Harry's pretty no nonsense but he's very sweet and emotional as well and um, and sensitive and like he's a great person to work with. But yeah, you have to sort of, I find that working with Harry, like it took me a while to to match his energy <laughs> in terms of like, like confidence in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You know, so he'll say like, he, he might say something like, no, that's fucking crazy. And I'll be like, no, you're wrong. My idea is better. <laughs> like in any other situation in my life, yeah, I would yeah. never have a conversation like that. There'd be so much more beating around the bush and like there'd be so much more padding. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it, you get to a place where it's just much more efficient and it's honest. And like, it's, I think that's great for when you're, you know, on a, a impossibly tight or non-existent budget and a very tight timeline because of that budget. Yeah. And like, there's no time to beat around the bush and, and be pleasant. You know, you can still respect each other, but just let's talk about what it is we really have to achieve. And if something isn't working, let's not pretend it is. I um, yeah. I, I have an all-time favorite story about that with Harry, which is just um, uh, I had 
produced a record that I was getting him to master. And he had talked about how the singer was uh, like when when I would get uh, kind of demos from her, all of her vocals would be really, really low in the mix. And I just said, you know, I get that. Like when you haven't done a ton of recordings, you're a little self-conscious about your voice. And I had said, you know, like that's something that it took me a long time to get over. Like I would demo stuff and I would mix my own voice really low until you develop a, a, a more of a sense of pride about your lyrics and the way that you're singing them and all of that. But, you know, before that, it's like, uh, I was pretty self-conscious and Harry just went, yeah, if I had your voice, I'd be self-conscious too. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then the thing is, went on to say a bunch of stuff that was very, very sweet about the demos and the recordings I had done, but yeah. it's like, yeah, he, he's right. It's like, I've got a weird voice. I was self-conscious about it for a while. And he knows that <laughs> he gets it. That's so funny. Yeah. That's a great <laughs> hairy anecdote. It's like, just, okay. He said it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's not mean spirited and it's not like malicious or, you know, it's just, and sometimes I think Harry says stuff that, uh, you know, most people might be afraid to say, um, yeah. Was was there? Can you think of, uh, or I guess, were there were there times in the recording of this record where um, that kind of feedback changed a song substantially? Honestly, no. I'm looking at the songs. I can't think of a time when when there was like a huge shift that had to happen. I feel like we were always on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. And the biggest shifts would have to be like when we both were realizing that the song just wasn't going to work this time. Right. Yeah. And so we would just hold off on that one for now kind of thing. Um, have you, have, have you always been pretty comfortable with collaboration or is that something you've had to kind of work at? Well, I think I've been trained to collaborate because I went to acting school and man, so many hours of intensive collaboration with a lot of people just got me to a place, I guess, where I take it for granted. Like I don't, I know that it's really important to, to trust your instincts and stand by your ideas. But I also know that nothing is so precious that it's not worth hearing someone else's idea, you know, and right. really giving that serious consideration. And because, you know, very often that'll enrich something. And um, you can't, you can't do that much in a vacuum, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've you've got to collaborate to some extent even if it's not in the songwriting it's like you need someone to to collaborate with when it comes to recording or um yeah so i don't know i yeah i feel very comfortable with it and i think i always have that said i mean i always the worst thing ever is doing like a group assignment in like a <laughs> high school class you know? yeah yeah um but that's different because nobody wants to be there. Uh, but if if you're collaborating in an environment where people are interested, it's great. Yeah, well, because I think there's kind of an unspoken thing. Um, it, at least there should be when you hire somebody who's going to produce stuff or who's going to play on a record. It's kind of implicit that you trust them to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just about kind of finding those people I think that you do feel that way about yeah and I think ideally you would find somebody who can push you a little well uh let's uh let's uh pick out a track here that we're gonna play at the end of the show and we can chat about that a little bit is there is there a song you're particularly fond of I'm I'm not staring at you in a weird way I'm looking at the track <laughs> list right now I would just go with track one <laughs> yeah uh replacement i'm i'm proud of that one because it was 
one of the songs where I felt the ideas were really fully realized. And uh, a lot is going on in that record, like subtle uh, arrangement stuff and, and nice kind of um, sensitive performances. Uh, one thing that really stands out is like all the um, nice percussion Brendan Lyons does, all sorts of little tricks he had up his sleeve and they really do a lot to bring the record to life. I love that. And uh, there's um, the robot angel choirs on this song. That's uh, <laughs> Harry and I, it was like probably one in the morning and we were like, oh, we, we just, we got to finish up these um, vocal harmonies on, on this vocal uh, sort of uh, vocalizing section. And what if we just make it happen with, uh, with Melodyne and some other tools? <laughs> and I'm so happy we did that because it gives it this, this um, otherworldly, almost auto-tune-y uh, quality that beautifully complements the song and the subject matter of the song. Um, so I wouldn't go any other way. Uh, but that was sort of an accident. It was something that we kind of stumbled on together. And and I think without that funny vocal treatment uh, behind my normal voice, um, the record wouldn't be so kind of dear to my heart. Yeah, so yeah. The replacement is a fun one. How deep do you get in, uh, in terms of like uh, arguing with yourself about track listing? Like, like how, how much is that something that's really close to your heart? Um, I don't, I don't agonize over it. I think I just kind of trust whatever it is that first comes to mind and then I'll test it out. And if it works, it works, you know, cause I think that, uh, it's really important that an album has a nice flow Yeah, yeah. and there, there should be sort of an arc to it that makes sense. And um, it should be comfortable for someone to listen, but, um, yeah, I don't agonize over that. I think it's pretty easy to figure out usually. Was there, was there something about replacement that made it really feel like track one? Like this has got to be the place where this starts. Yeah, I think so. I'm really interested in like, uh, instrumental catchphrases. So that kind of guitar riff I think is a cute, fun kind of a resting way, I hope, to start the album. Um, and uh, yeah, I was inspired by uh, an associate, a song by The Association called Never My Love that has this, now that I've said that, anyone who hears that song will be like, oh, he totally ripped it off. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I, I really wanted to do a song that had a sort of a catchphrase like that song does. Right. Well, uh, we're going to listen to a song called Replacement from the uh, the brand new record from Sammy Volkov. It's called uh, Be All Right. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Sammy, for sitting down to chat. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Um, it was really fun talking about it. And thanks for the thoughtful questions. Something in the way that you run. Something the way that you smile Mama didn't like me at all But your daddy didn't mind Tell you what the smile on my Something in the way that you laugh Something in the way that you lie But you never really hurt me at all And I guess I shouldn't mind Bring another blessing 
Inside the Artist Studio is produced by Sean Davis Newton for the Cups and Cakes Network. The feature track, Replacement, was played with permission from Sammy Volkov. Thanks to Laundry Week for the use of their song, Nothing On My Mind, from the Grimpy EP as our intro and outro music. Inside the Artist Studio is one of the many ways the Cups and Cakes Network highlights Canadian music. Visit our website, cupsandcakespod.com, to browse our audio, video, and written content. That's Cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks for listening.